Congress returns to Washington today after a two-week recess. A focus in the House will be on addressing the nation's credit limit. It's Monday, April 17th. This is WBMR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the investigation into the shooting in Alabama that left four dead and two dozen hurt. Also, the problems with insurance and mental health care for teenagers. Private insurance has never treated mental health and substance use services in an equitable, fair way. And this hour, ahead of today's Boston Marathon, we hear from runner Kara Goucher on the race here and her life since she stopped competing. I look forward to my run every single day. I mean, even like... And it's not for anyone but me. I just feel free. Mostly cloudy with a chance for rain this afternoon, near 60 today. It's 7.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Mourners in Dadeville, Alabama held vigils last night for the people killed at a teenager's birthday party on Saturday. Four people died in a shooting at a sweet 16 birthday party in the town about 60 miles northeast of Montgomery. Law enforcement officials have released very little information. They say 28 people were hurt, but it's not clear if all of them were shot. It's also not clear if there's a suspect in custody or if there was more than one shooter or why the birthday party was a target. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is expected to move this week to temporarily replace Senator Dianne Feinstein on the powerful Judiciary Committee. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the 89-year-old California Democrat has been on medical leave since February, prompting renewed calls for her to resign. While acknowledging Senator Feinstein's decades of public service, California Congressman Ro Khanna is calling for her immediate resignation. I don't know any other job in America where... You can't show up for months. You, you don't tell people when you're going to show up. You've been sort of absent for a, a year or two, and there are no consequences. Feinstein's office released a statement last week asking her colleagues to temporarily replace her on the Senate Judiciary Committee. In order to do that, Democrats would need to pass a resolution on the Senate floor. With Feinstein's absence, the committee has delayed advancing more than a dozen of President Biden's judicial nominees for full Senate confirmation. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Officials in eastern Indiana have lifted an evacuation order for thousands of residents. From member station WYSO, Chris Welter reports they had fled smoke from a massive fire at a plastics recycling plant. Even with the fire contained, first responders remain on scene to monitor for flare-ups. And EPA personnel are working to clean up asbestos-containing debris that has fallen in people's yards, businesses, and on roofs. To returning residents, the city of Richmond is providing free cleaning kits. Christine Stidson is with the Wayne County Health Department. But if your house um, did fill with smoke during the fire, we have instructions on how to to properly and safely uh, clean the inside of your home. Meanwhile, schools remained closed Monday while contractors use air scrubbers to clean the inside of the buildings. For NPR News, I'm Chris Welter. There's a third day of heavy fighting in Sudan between the army and a powerful rival paramilitary force. The weekend's civilian death toll has risen to 97 people. The storied Boston Marathon gets underway today. It is also the 10th anniversary of the Boston Marathon bombing. The attack left five people dead. You're listening to NPR News.
From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. More now on this year's Boston Marathon. The first wheelchair racers will take off from the starting line in Hopkinton in less than two hours. WBR's Alex Ashlock joins us live from near the starting line. Alex, which runners will you be following today? I have my eyes on Kenyan Elliot Kipchoge. He's the world's top marathoner right now, probably the world's greatest ever marathoner. He's a two-time Olympic champion and the world record holder. Marathon is life. It has ups and downs. The moment you run in a good way, but challenges arrive. You press on, you press on. It's about challenging yourself. He's challenging himself today by running the Boston Marathon for the first time ever. In the wheelchair races, American Daniel Romanchuk is the defending champion in the men's competition, but five-time winner Marcel Hug of Switzerland surely will challenge him in that race today. Another athlete from Switzerland, Manuela Schar, is back seeking her own fifth victory in the women's wheelchair race. Rupa? What are you hearing from runners this morning about what they're thinking about the weather? Upper 50s today, but there is a chance of showers. Are they talking about that? Yeah, I think the weather today is really not too bad for running, at least right now. It's foggy. It's a little chilly. There's a little mist in the air. But I think in general, runners will not be unhappy with this weather unless we get a downpour later in the day, which uh, would make it a little more difficult. But I think as it stands right now, uh, running conditions, not too bad. All right. Sounds good. Thanks very much, Alex. We'll be talking again with you soon. You're welcome. There are plenty of roads closed along the marathon route, so the T may be your best way to get around today. All of the subway and commuter rail lines will run on a weekday schedule. Buses are on a Saturday schedule. Copley Station near the finish line is closed. The MBTA recommends using Hines, Arlington, or Back Bay to get to the finish line. A reminder for anyone going to the area near Copley Square, you'll need to go through a security check. Backpacks, glass containers, and coolers are not allowed. Worcester officials are headed to New York City today to learn more about safe injection sites. Those are places where drug users can inject themselves under medical supervision. Worcester leaders say they want to see if those sites would help with the city's efforts to fight drug addiction. The Department of Health tells the Telegram and Gazette overdose deaths in the city have more than doubled since 2021. Officials in Somerville are also considering opening a safe injection site in their city. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Chapel Hill Chauncey Hall School in Waltham, Mass. For nearly 200 years, day and boarding students have achieved their best at CHCH. And next year, they will be opening doors and welcoming students to the new Chapel Hill Chauncey Hall Middle School. Learn more at their open house on April 23rd chch.org slash open house. The Bruins begin their playoff run tonight as they host the Florida Panthers in game one of their series. The Red Sox and L.A. Angels play this morning in the annual Patriots Day game at Fenway. The Sox beat the Angels yesterday 2-1. to one. Mostly cloudy today with a chance for rain or a thunderstorm early in the afternoon. It'll get near 60 today. Clearing overnight. Temperatures near 50 tonight, mostly sunny tomorrow and in the 60s, mostly sunny again on Wednesday and in the upper 50s. It's 50 degrees in Boston at 707. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by CFP, certified financial planner professionals committed to acting in their clients' best interests. Learn more at letsmakeaplan.org.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. Residents in Sudan's capital are sheltering inside their homes, trying to protect themselves from the bombardments and artillery fire outside. It's a battle for power of the North African nation, a battle between the country's military and the paramilitary group, the Rapid Support Forces. The fighting has already killed nearly 100 civilians since it began Saturday. Hundreds more are injured. Journalist Zainab Mohamed Soleil is one of those sheltering in place. She's in Khartoum, and I spoke with her early this morning. There is a heavy gunfire all over the city. Military jets are over us all the time. Uh, there's a small market nearby, uh, but there's shortage in food, and you can't go out. NPR's Emmanuel Akinwotu is following this from Lagos, Nigeria. He's on the line with us. Uh, we heard from a reporter there in Sudan. What else are you hearing, and what can you tell us that uh, led to the fighting? Good morning. You know, when I've been talking to people in Khartoum who've been kind enough to talk to me in such tough circumstances, they've shared about how, uh, you know, places they used to eat, by groceries, see family and friends have basically been turned into a battlefield right before their eyes. And this is truly the nightmare end to a power struggle between the army and the RSF. You know, the RSF are a brutal paramilitary force created by former military leader and, and the president, al-Bashir. And they became a key part of the security infrastructure in Sudan. And the army and the RSF really were allies. They helped actually bring Bashir down after the stunning Sudanese revolution in 2019. Um, and the RSF helped the army take power again in 2021, in October. And since then, there's been a fragile, you know, some argue flawed transition to democracy, a process that was meant to mean both forces were actually supposed to integrate. But that set the stage for a power struggle between them and their leaders, the leader of the army, General Behan, and the leader of the RSF, General Dagalo, often called Hemeti. This, many people who I've spoken to say, is a battle between the two unfolding across Khartoum and Sudan. And that battle, any sense right now over who has the upper hand right now so far? It's not entirely clear. Uh, It's a very murky picture. Something that people have told me over the phone is that, you know, during civilian protests and coups, often what we see in Sudan is the Internet being shut down. But actually, that has been not exactly the same case this time. You know, Internet services have been affected, but on the whole, there is still access. And people think and people I've spoken to say it's because they think there is also a propaganda war going on alongside the actual battles. And both sides are really claiming to have the upper hand, claiming to have taken over key sites. And and the army have said, you know, they're close to victory, but the fighting is still going on. And that political process to put a democratic and civilian government back in control, where does that uh, stand? You know, to put it mildly, it's extremely remote. Ever since the revolution, you know, the will of the Sudanese people who tripped out onto the streets so admirably that we all saw in 2019 has been something that we made very key, very technocratic demands for the kind of democracy that they wanted to see. But both forces that were key in shaping Sudan since then, the army and the RSF, have effectively subverted that will. And the transition process was meant to be a kind of pragmatic solution to create a civilian government that would create a new normal in Sudan. But that has not happened. And what we are instead seeing is both of these forces fight for supremacy on who will shape Sudan going forward. That's NPR's Emmanuel Akinwotu. Thank you very much. Thank you. 
In just a matter of hours, the commercial spaceflight company SpaceX is planning to launch the biggest rocket ever made. It's called Starship. SpaceX CEO Elon Musk says he wants it to carry humans to the final frontier. It is essential over the long term that we become a multi-planet species and ultimately even go beyond the solar system. But first, of course, it has to lift off from Earth. Joining me to discuss how easy or not that will be is NPR science correspondent Jeff Brumfield. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning. Okay, so let's start with this morning's flight. What's going to happen? Nobody knows. Uh, (laughs) SpaceX is saying only that excitement is guaranteed. But here's the hope. The Starship rocket will lift off from SpaceX's main development facility in Boca Chica, Texas. It'll fly up into space, complete a partial trip around the Earth, and splash down somewhere near Hawaii. But I have to say, there is quite a bit that could go wrong. Okay, so what are the risks of this flight? Well, many, 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 because this is a rocket unlike anything that's ever been built. First of all, it's made of stainless steel, so it looks really beautiful. It's gleaming and stuff. It's actually pretty cheap, but the problem is it's heavy, and that means this rocket needs a lot of power, a lot of thrust to fly. So Starship needs six rocket engines, and its booster stage needs 33 rocket engines to lift off the ground. That's more than any other rocket ever made. I spoke to Paolo Lozano, a rocket scientist at MIT. He said getting all those rockets to fire together is going to be really tough. Having that large number of rocket engines firing simultaneously, it's actually quite hard. I think that's going to be one of the biggest challenges. And I mean, on top of this, uh, this is a new design uh, of engine, a new kind of engine called Raptor. That's SpaceX's name for it. It's very powerful, very innovative. But SpaceX has seen a few failures in early flight tests. If even one engine blows up on this test, it could cause the whole thing to explode, hence guaranteed excitement. Yikes. I mean, that sounds like a huge risk for a private company. What's in it for SpaceX? What does it want this giant rocket for? One word, one planet, actually. It's Mars. SpaceX CEO Elon Musk is obsessed with getting people to Mars, and he believes this rocket is the first step. It's large enough to deliver a lot of equipment into orbit cheaply, and Starship itself could go to the red planet Mars. Musk uh, believes it could even help create a settlement on Mars. Starship is capable of doing that. It's capable of getting a million tons to the surface of Mars and creating a self-sustaining city. NASA's also paying SpaceX to develop a version that could land on the moon. And finally, there's a business reason for SpaceX. They have a satellite internet company called Starlink that needs more satellites to grow its subscriber base. Their current rockets can launch maybe dozens at a time. Starship could potentially launch hundreds at a time. That would cause the uh, Starlink network to grow dramatically. But what if it fails? What happens then? You know, some space companies are very reluctant to let their rockets blow up. I have to say SpaceX is not one of those companies. They kind of embrace failure on the road to success, see it as an opportunity to learn, and it's worked for them in the past. But these are difficult times in the tech sector. Uh, SpaceX announced it was trying to raise more money from investors in January, and I think, you know, a failure could complicate those efforts. NPR's Jeff Brumfield. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you. There was a mass shooting in the town of Dadeville, Alabama on Saturday. Police say four people died and at least 28 others were injured. 
It happened at a dance studio that was hosting a Sweet 16 birthday party, and authorities have given very little information about what actually happened, why it happened, or even if the suspect is dead or alive. Kyle Gassett of Troy Public Radio joins us now from Montgomery, Alabama. Kyle, what do we know about what happened? Well, A, as you said, not much. The shootings happened inside a rented dance studio just past 10.30 p.m. Central Time on Saturday. The studio often hosts big community events like birthday parties and other festivities and celebrations. It's right on the town square and a popular place. Now, we know that many kids were in attendance, but police have released no information about any of the victims, their age ranges, or how they died, or their injuries. Authorities gave two brief news conferences during the day on Sunday, but took no questions and ignored shouts from reporters like me to just get the simplest of details, like if the community should be worried about a suspect on the loose or if that person was among those who died. Now, you were there in Dadeville yesterday. What are people saying about this uncertainty and this lack of information? Well, A, they're frustrated and don't understand why the police are being so tight-lipped. As you know, in other mass shootings by this point, a day or two after the event, there's typically a good idea about the circumstances and some clues about what happened and why. And in this case, we really have none of that. The frustration bubbled up during a community vigil last night. I spoke with Tunisia Johnson, who said she'd heard some things, but didn't want to discuss with a reporter, and is frustrated the police aren't saying more. I really thought that more was going to come out from that, because there's way more information that they can give, okay? There's way more information. I just don't want to be the one to do it. During this vigil, pastors and others talked about the need for hope and understanding. Pastor Ben Hayes spoke at the service. Here's what he had to say. I was handed a candle, and I'm assuming many of you were as well. And uh, it's still daylight. But what good's a candle if you don't light it? All right, so despite not having much information uh, so far, has there been any attempt to try and piece together something, anything about the victims? Yeah, a one of those who died is Phil Dowdle. He was a star athlete at Dadeville High School. Just this past Friday, he actually competed and won at a track meet. He'd been accepted at Jacksonville State University and was going to play football next year. His coach-to-be at JSU tweeted about his death, saying he was a great young man with a bright future. I spoke to his grandmother yesterday, who said he was the older brother of the girl celebrating her 16th birthday. She was heartbroken and angry about his death, complaining about the prevalence of guns in this country. She also said that her daughter, his mother, was also shot, but she survived the shooting. A, this is just one of the many victims we'll learn about in the coming days. What kind of a place is Dadeville? It's one of those typical small Alabama towns, population around 3,000. It's about an hour from the state capital of Montgomery and not too far from Auburn University. It's a majority black city, one of the places where most folks know each other. Obviously, this isn't easy for the community, particularly the young people of Dadeville. The superintendent of the county school system has said classes will start today like normal, even though the day will be anything but that. He's already said that counselors will be on hand at schools to help students and staff manage the stress, grief, and anger about what happened at this birthday party. That's Kyle Gassett of Troy Public Radio. Kyle, thanks. Thank you, A.
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, how insurance complicates critical mental health care for teenagers and young adults. And in our next hour, the Supreme Court hears a case this week that could undermine one of the most powerful tools for fighting fraud in government programs. Understanding the False Claims Act ahead this morning on 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for starting your week here. It's 720. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square. With private cooking events for team building, family reunions, birthday parties, or nights out. CambridgeCulinary.com. New emissions rules unveiled by the EPA recently can only be met if automakers are able to sell a lot more electric cars and trucks in the near future. The timeline for this is incredibly fast in an industry as big and as slow as the auto industry. Are consumers ready to buy more EVs? On All Things Considered, from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. While you're having your coffee this morning, check out WBUR.org on your phone to get everything you need to know about this year's Boston Marathon, including the top runners, where to watch the race, and what you're not allowed to bring through security checks. In your forecast fog this morning and a good chance of showers early this afternoon, we may also see a thunderstorm. The high will be near 57. Tonight, a slight chance of more showers in the early evening, then cloudy. Temperatures will fall to a low of 51. Tomorrow, partly sunny with a high near 61. It's 50 degrees in Boston at 721. Support for NPR comes from this station and from CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. From Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's Gummies, Designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. From the United States Postal Service, reinventing its network with shipping options designed to keep businesses moving forward. USPS, delivering for America. USPS.com slash moving forward. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldil. We're going to talk about suicide now. It's the second leading cause of death for young Americans. But health insurance often limits the kind of care they can receive. NPR's Ritu Chatterjee has this story about a suicidal teen whose treatment was cut short by her insurance plan. Rose was 13 when she first attempted suicide. She had been struggling with symptoms of anxiety and depression and had become increasingly withdrawn. By the summer of 2020, when she was nearly 15, her mother Rochelle says her daughter had attempted suicide multiple times. She's hearing a voice in her head telling her that she needed to die, that she needed to do something to kill herself, that she needed to hurt herself. I met Rochelle and her husband Michael in their big, beautiful home in Columbus, Ohio. We sat in their backyard because we didn't want to upset Rose, who was home and still in treatment. NPR is not using their full names to protect the minor's identity. 
Rochelle told me that she searched for two years to find the most effective treatment for Rose. It's a kind of structured therapy designed for individuals with chronic suicide attempts, and it's called Dialectical Behavioral Therapy, or DBT. And a treatment center in Wisconsin had a residential program tailored for girls like Rose. I had a sense of relief when we finally did get into Rogers because I'm like, okay, finally, we're going to find an expert, somebody who has had experience with this before. Rose made multiple suicide attempts early on at Rogers Behavioral Health. But about two months in, things started to shift for her. Rochelle says she remembers her daughter starting to open up more. She's starting to talk and starting to talk about wanting to live, which we hadn't heard her do in a couple of years. Rose's father, Michael, remembers that turning point, too. It was really the first glimmer of hope that we had seen, you know, in probably about two years. So we thought we were on the right track. In many ways, Michael and Rochelle were uniquely positioned to care for a child with serious mental illness. Rochelle was a school counselor and Michael a corporate lawyer. Michael says it was shortly after Rose started to show improvements that the family's health insurance, Medical Mutual of Ohio, cut off coverage. It didn't make sense to me, and more importantly, it made no sense to her treating psychiatrist and, and the treatment team. They said it was extremely dangerous and would likely lead to a worsening of her symptoms. It's a situation many families face across the country, especially those with private insurance. Ellen Weber is vice president at Legal Action Center, a New York City-based nonprofit that works on health equity. Private insurance has never treated mental health and substance use services in an equitable, fair way. Congress tried to address this in 1998 with a federal mental health parity law. It requires insurers to cover mental health and physical health exactly the same way. Several states have similar laws in place. But Weber says insurance companies routinely violate these laws. They address mental illnesses as crises and not the chronic conditions they are. There is a move to address what is the acute crisis situation. And once that individual is so-called stabilized, there is a move to move that individual to a, a different, lower level of care, a much less expensive level of care. Regarding Rose's case, Medical Mutual of Ohio declined an interview request by NPR. In an email statement, it said it made its coverage decision in accordance with industry guidelines. NPR obtained a recording of a phone call between Rose's psychiatrist and a physician from Medical Mutual of Ohio about six weeks into her treatment. We're not using the physician's names because neither had permission to talk to us and they didn't have an opportunity to respond. Here's what the insurance company physician said in that phone call. Hard to find the right time to transition to a lower level, but it's, I felt like that this wasn't a bad time. Rose's psychiatrist strongly disagreed. He said Rose was still highly suicidal. Then the insurance company physician says, So when will it go well for her? When will she ever go home? Rose had already been in treatment for weeks, she said, and that is more than what Medical Mutual typically covers. She then pushes for a plan with an end date in sight, which got this response from Rose's psychiatrist. Sounds like your plan is you want a discharge in a week. That's not a plan, that's a discharge date. The call ended without a decision. Eventually, the facility convinced Medical Mutual to cover Rose's treatment for a few more weeks. But then Rose's father, Michael, says they cut her off. This was in mid-November. We had run out of internal appeals and they weren't changing their mind. So at that point, we began self-paying. 
The family paid about $1,000 a day so Rose could continue her treatment. But in about a month, when they couldn't afford it anymore, she returned home to Columbus. And Michael filed an external appeal. This involved an independent reviewer assigned by the Ohio Department of Insurance. In August 2021, the independent reviewer said the family should be refunded $40,000. I'd say I'm more relieved than pleased. The decision ultimately worked and came out the way it should have always come out. But, he says, it shouldn't have taken nine months of red tape. It just doesn't seem right the way they were treating me. It doesn't seem right the way I know that they're probably treating other people in similar circumstances, but don't have the financial means to pay out of pocket and don't have the time, energy, knowledge or resources to hold the insurance company accountable. As a result, many such families end up losing their loved ones because of lack of treatment. As for Rose, she's now 17. She's stable, but still struggles. She still has a high level of depression and anxiety and high level of suicidal ideation. So it's sort of day by day, week by week. But she's come a long way, he adds. Rose is taking courses towards a high school degree and making plans for the future. And for that, Michael says, he's grateful. Ritu Chatterjee, NPR News. If you or someone you know is in crisis and needs help, dial or text the National Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988. Support for NPR health coverage comes from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits at progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. This is NPR News. Thanks for listening to WBUR. Coming up here on Morning Edition, Congress is expected to prioritize finding a solution to defaulting on the nation's credit limit as it gets back to work this week. And in one hour, we talk live with longtime WBUR Boston Marathon reporter Alex Ashlock for a preview of today's race. It's 729. Check out Violation, a new podcast from WBUR in partnership with The Marshall Project. It explores America's opaque parole system through a decades-old murder case. You can hear Violation wherever you get your podcasts. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Nearly 100 people in Sudan are reported to have been killed amid an ongoing fight for control of the country. This is the third day of fighting between the country's military and members of a paramilitary group. Secretary of State Antony Blinken spoke about Sudan while attending a meeting of G7 foreign ministers in Japan. There is a shared deep concern uh, about the fighting, uh, the violence that's going on in Sudan, the threat that that poses to civilians, that it poses to the Sudanese nation, and potentially poses even to, to the region. Authorities in Dadeville, Alabama, are investigating a deadly weekend shooting at a teenager's birthday party. Four people were killed. More than two dozen others were injured at a downtown dance studio about 60 miles northeast of Montgomery. In Louisville, Kentucky, police say two people were killed and four others wounded when someone fired a gun into a crowd of people at a park on Saturday night. 
It came less than a week after five people were shot to death at a bank in downtown Louisville. The city's mayor, Craig Greenberg, says state lawmakers on both sides of the aisle need to focus on gun violence. To join together in a bipartisan basis about what we can do for Louisville and our entire state to make it safer. There's no word on arrests being made in either shooting. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Today is the day for the 127th Boston Marathon. The wheelchair racers will take off from the start line in Hopkinton just after 9. The elite men then take off a few minutes after 9.30. Among those elite men is Kenyan runner Elliot Kipchoge. He's a world record holder running Boston for the first time. He says he's tried to set a standard for other runners to follow during his long career. Longevity is what is needed in sport. Longevity is what inspires the next generation. I am working for the next generation. The elite women will begin at 9.47. Then after 10, it's the waves of other runners. There are more than 30,000 competitors this year. They're all headed to the finish line in Copley Square. Security will be tight in downtown Boston. Police remind spectators not to bring backpacks or coolers to the marathon route. The Copley Square T station will be closed all day because of the race. Today isn't just about the marathon, though. Patriots Day marks the start of the Revolutionary War on April 19, 1775. In Lincoln yesterday, a fife and drum festival attracted groups from across the country. Steve Taskovics plays the fife. He's been involved in war reenactments for decades. He wants people to understand the role music played in battles. The musicians actually were the signalers for the army, and they played just a critical role in the management of an army as the soldiers and the officers would. A reenactment of the Battle of Lexington began just before sunrise this morning. Investigators say a Massachusetts Air National Guard member accused of leaking classified documents may have more of them. Jack Teixeira is charged with leaking military secrets, including information about the war in Ukraine. A report obtained by the Boston Globe shows officials expect to find more classified documents after searching his home in Dighton. Teixeira is due back in court on Wednesday. It's 733. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. It's baseball before lunch at Fenway today. The Red Sox and Los Angeles Angels play in the annual Patriots Day game. Boston beat L.A. yesterday 2-1. Tonight at the Garden, it's game one of the playoffs for the Bruins. They're taking on the Florida Panthers in the first round. It's a busy sports day in Boston, to say the least. WBR Sharon Brody spoke with someone whose job it will be to pump up the fans. For two of today's big competitions, T.J. Connolly of Watertown will be in the mix, literally. He's the DJ at the marathon finish line and then the DJ at Game 1 of the Bruins playoffs. Connolly says the challenge of getting from Boylston Street to the Garden is well worth it. These experiences, these moments, these victories, these losses are the things that bring us all together. And we have these shared memories. And part of how you can make those into, you know, a real mental milestone moment is through music. Connolly says spontaneity is key, but both the marathon and the Bruins crowds will hear some of the same local favorites, including a certain Dropkick Murphys number. Oh, 
94.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. In your forecast, a high in the upper 60s today under foggy skies that may give way to showers and a thunderstorm beginning early this afternoon. Tonight, temperatures fall to the low 50s and there's another slight chance of rain. Tomorrow, partly sunny and a high in the low 60s. It's 49 degrees in Boston at 735. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash banking for business. And from Indeed, a hiring platform committed to helping businesses of all sizes. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct interviews in one place. Indeed.com slash NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. Good morning. Congress returns from a two-week recess today, and lawmakers have a lot on their agenda. House Republicans are drafting legislation to avoid a default on the nation's credit limit. Senators face a possible vote on temporarily replacing ailing Senator Dianne Feinstein on the Senate Judiciary Committee. And NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh is here to talk about all of this. Good morning. Good morning. Okay, so let's start with the debt limit negotiations. They've been stalled for months, but Speaker McCarthy is giving a speech this morning. What should we expect to hear from him? Well, the speaker is focusing on the economy in his speech at the New York Stock Exchange today. According to a source familiar with his remarks, he's going to outline the House Republicans' approach to increasing the debt ceiling and explain why Republicans believe raising it with no changes to the country's fiscal trajectory, in their view, is not the right decision. President Biden continues to say Congress should pass a clean bill to boost the country's borrowing authority, and the president wants to see a GOP budget before having more negotiations with McCarthy. But instead, McCarthy's moving ahead with his own bill. The Republican bill is expected to cap federal spending levels at those from two years ago. They also plan to add a provision that would put work requirements in place for adults without dependents who receive any federal food assistance benefits. Republicans also want to add reforms to how new energy projects are permitted. But even if this Republican bill can get through the House, it's not going to move in the Democratic-controlled Senate, and the country's going to run out of borrowing authority sometime this summer. Um, Let's talk about Dianne Feinstein now from California. She's 89, hasn't voted since February after a shingles diagnosis, and Democrats say her absence is a problem. They called on her to resign because they say it's stalling confirmation of President Biden's judicial nominees. She's not resigning but asking to be temporarily replaced on the Senate Judiciary Committee. Could that happen this week? It could. The Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer plans to ask the Senate this week to add another Democrat to take Feinstein's place on the Judiciary Committee. Like you said, without her vote on that panel, the president's judicial nominees are effectively stalled and not getting votes on the Senate floor. But putting another Democrat on that committee would require Republican support. Republicans have had their own issues with uh, absences due to medical issues. The top Senate Republican, Mitch McConnell, is coming back to work today. He fell in early March and missed votes because he's been recovering from a concussion. But any vote to replace Feinstein is going to need 60 votes in the Senate. Democrats have just a 51-49 majority there. Now, lawmakers, while they were in recess, a lot happened. Former President Trump was indicted on criminal charges and federal courts ruled to restrict abortion medication. Are these expected to be issues they deal with this week? 
They are. I mean, in terms of Trump, today the House Judiciary Committee is holding a field hearing in New York City, zeroing in on Alvin Bragg. He's the New York prosecutor who brought the criminal charges involving hush money payments paid by Trump to an adult film star. The chairman, Jim Jordan, has already been investigating Bragg, and today he's inviting witnesses who are going to outline their criticisms of Bragg's record on crime. Democrats on that panel are, pan are planning an aggressive pushback, arguing that crime has actually gone down under Bragg's tenure. On abortion, that lower court action really puts abortion back front and center in the political debate on Capitol Hill. Democrats believe the backlash to the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade last year really helped them keep control of the Senate in the midterms and stave off major losses in the House. So Democrats are planning hearings on the issue. Some have proposed legislation that protects abortion medications approval by the FDA. Republicans have been mostly silent about the issue. There's been a lot of divisions about how they should respond. Um, and another topic that will come up this week is the leak investigation. We're expecting a closed briefing on that issue uh, midweek. NPR's Deirdre Walsh. Thanks, Deirdre. Thanks, Layla. Russia's foreign minister is traveling through Latin America with stops in Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela, and Brazil. And that is where Sergei Lavrov is today. His tour is raising concern in the West, especially after Brazil's president just met with Chinese leader Xi Jinping in China. For more on this, we're joined by NPR's South America correspondent, Carrie Kahn. She's in Rio de Janeiro. Carrie, uh, why is Russia's foreign minister coming to Brazil? Is there a, an official agenda? Yes. First, he'll meet with uh, Brazil's foreign minister. The two met at a G20 conference last month, and recently a top foreign policy advisor to Brazil's president met with Putin. So there have been a lot of meetings of late. In the afternoon, Lavra is expected to give a message to the press, no questions, just a statement. Uh, Russia, Russia and Brazil do a lot of business together. Russian fertilizer is vital to Brazil's huge agribusiness here, and a lot of which is sold to China. So there, there's that in the talks, too. Okay, so I got to imagine the war in Ukraine will also come up. Uh, Brazil's uh, new leftist president, uh, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, has uh, refused to condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine. He says they're a neutral world player and they do business with everyone. Um, Kerry, is that what Lavrov came to really talk about, the relationship between Russia and Brazil? Some say yes, and it's key for Lavrov to be seen in an international setting in a major democracy, giving the Russian perspective on the war. For what Brazil gets out of this, I called Oliver Stinkel. He's a foreign policy expert at Brazil's FGV University, and I, I asked him that. I, he says it's to get the West to see that Lula has a lot of options in the world. That's exactly what Brazil wants. It's basically sending the message to the United States, to Europe, says, look, we're really deepening ties to these countries. What do you have to offer? But Schunkel also says Lula has to be careful and not take that too far and anger the U.S. and European allies, which they're already unhappy that he won't, like he said, won't condemn Russia's invasion and won't sell ammunition to Ukraine. And in China, he was just there and he accused the U.S. of encouraging the war, saying it took two nations to start it and will take many more to end it. He does like to be this, seen as this neutral world player and he wants to form this so-called peace club and be a mediator with other non-aligned uh, nations to broker an end to the war. All right. So what other topics uh, do you expect uh, can come up? Well, this is really interesting. This has come up a lot between Russia and Brazil lately, and that's spies. Hmm. Three Russian spies were just discovered working with fake Brazilian IDs. It's just this fascinating story, like right out of that series, The Americans, about sleeper yeah. spies in U.S. Yeah. society. 
And the whole incident has triggered much concern about the ease of getting fake Brazilian documents. And I, I wanted to know about that. And I called this detective with the Brazilian Federal Police to ask what it is about Brazil that makes it so desirable for spies. His name is Gustavo Greiser. And he says Brazil's multiracial and ethnic melting pots lets all sorts of people blend in here. And it's a good backstory for blonde-eyed blue Russians with odd Portuguese accents. Also, he says Brazil's passport is widely accepted in the world. We have uh, good diplomatic relationships with many countries. We don't have much enemies. Uh, so it's a good passport to travel to different places of the world. One of the discovered spies in jail here um, is in jail here, and Russia says they want him back. They're claiming he's a drug trafficker. So lots of interesting conversations today. That's NPR's Carrie Kahn. Fascinating stuff. Carrie, thanks. You're welcome. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. Next on Morning Edition, we look into reports that U.S. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas has claimed income from a defunct real estate firm for years. And in our next hour, Sudan is in chaos as fighting continues between the Army and paramilitary forces. In your forecast, it's race day, and WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce says the weather is mostly cooperating. While temperatures will be nearly ideal for runners today in the 50s for much of the race, the scattered showers do pose a threat. There will be some slippery spots on the roads and the risk of some hypothermia cases since the wetness will take away body heat from marathoners. You may even have a quick downpour. There's an isolated threat for a thunderstorm, but that risk is very low. It won't be raining the whole time. Have your umbrella or raincoat if you're lining the streets to cheer everyone on. There'll be a steady 10 to 15 mile per hour east wind, so a headwind battling against the runners along the course route. The risk of showers and 3 to 5 p.m. Some partial clearing arrives by evening. Temperatures will be in the low 50s tonight, then tomorrow, partly sunny and in the low 60s. It's 49 degrees in Boston at 745. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Muzzin Audio, offering high-fidelity FM Bluetooth audio speakers in an array of nostalgic designs and colors, available at muzzinaudio.com. And Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. Sudbury-based Grid Wealth is building 10 new rooftop solar projects across Massachusetts. The company says the project will create 15 megawatts of solar energy. That's enough to power about 3,000 homes. People living at the extremely high-end St. Regis Residences Tower in the seaport will get a unique luxury amenity. The building's management says it's partnering with Tailwind Air to give its residents direct access to a seaplane. The plane will pick people up from their waterfront docks so they don't have to go to the airport. Planes will take them to destinations like Nantucket and Manhattan. It's 746. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Peacock with the new original series, Mrs. Davis, about the world's most powerful artificial intelligence and the nun devoted to destroying her. From Tara Hernandez and Damon Lindelof, streams April 20th on Peacock. And from iDrive, providing cloud backup, full system backup, and on-site iDrive appliance to protect PCs, Macs, and servers from data loss due to crashes and ransomware at idrive.com. This is NPR.
This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldil. This morning, we're following another development involving U.S. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and his finances. The Washington Post reports Thomas indicated for years that his family received rental income from a real estate company that no longer exists. Investigative reporter Emma Brown co-authored the story and joins me now. Good morning, Emma. Good morning. If you could just start by walking us through what you uncovered. Sure. Decades ago, um, Clarence Thomas's wife, Ginny Thomas, her family in Nebraska established a real estate company called Ginger Limited Partnership. And it was a land leasing company, um, traced its roots to a couple of lakeside developments outside Omaha. Clarence Thomas has, since 1990, when he was first nominated to join the federal bench, reported annual income from that company on his financial disclosure forms. But the company ceased to exist in 2006, um, and the family's holdings were transferred to a similarly named company, Ginger Holdings, LLC. Uh, So, but he has continued to report this income as coming from the company that no longer exists. Mm. And in recent years, that income has been between $50,000 and $100,000 a year. Have you gotten a response from Justice Thomas about why this happened? We have not gotten a comment from him nor his nor his wife. Um, And, you know, it it could very well be just a paperwork issue. Mm -hmm. But taken together with other errors and omissions on his financial disclosure forms over the years, it's a it's part of a pattern that it's raised questions about how seriously he views his responsibility to accurately report details of his finances to the public. Now, your story comes after revelations in a ProPublica investigation about Thomas's disclosure history. Um, That report revealed that a Texas billionaire took him on lavish vacations. Um, What does this mean when it comes to trust in Thomas and the Supreme Court? Yeah, the two recent ProPublica stories um, have landed as bombshells for sure. But there have been other instances over the years of um, of errors or omissions on his form. So, for example, his wife, Jenny Thomas, worked at the Heritage Foundation for several years in the mid-2000s and earned close to $700,000. But he, he reported during those years that she had no income from mm-hmm. employment um, and at the time said it was a... It, misunderstanding of the filing instructions. And there have been other instances like that that, um, you know, we talked to an ethics expert from New York University, Stephen Gillers, who said Thomas's assurances and promises cannot be trusted at this Mm. point, and he should be investigated. So taken together, how many things could be simple mistakes, I think is what he's saying, right? Yeah, he's just saying at this point... um, we should, you know, he's actually, uh, as we reported in our story, believes that all three branches of government should investigate just because uh, Americans' trust in the Supreme Court is at a low right now, um, and it is important for Americans to be able to trust it. It's a critical institution in our republic. Washington Post reporter Emma Brown, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up at 8.20, professional runner Kara Goucher remembers the terror at the Boston finish line in 2013. And in 20 minutes, scientists say there's still hope for the world's glaciers if we reduce greenhouse gases now. It's 7.51. I'm Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston, Marathon Day. Thousands of people will hit the trail from Hopkinton to Copley, including many new to running. One of the most important decisions every runner has to make, which shoes will they trust to get them across the finish line? That's Radio Boston today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. Nearly 100 people are dead in Sudan amid a wave of violence between two of the country's military factions. Investigators in Alabama are searching for a motive in a shooting where four people were killed and dozens of others were hurt. And the 127th Boston Marathon gets underway today with the first racers taking off from Hopkinton in just over an hour. We'll have more on the top stories of the day in about 10 minutes. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge. Real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. Cloudy this morning with temperatures rising to the upper 50s. Right now it's 49 degrees in Boston at 752. WBUR supporters include Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at FindMassMoney.com. This is WB Wars Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shinoy. On this Marathon Monday, we hear from a woman who was once among the fastest in the world. My name is Kara Goucher. I'm a mother and a wife. I am a two-time Olympian, a world championship silver medalist, and a two-time podium finisher at World Marathon Majors. Kara Goucher is out with a new memoir that goes behind the headlines and glossy magazine covers of her life as a professional runner. In the book, she details the doping and sexual abuse allegations against Alberto Salazar that led to his lifetime ban from the sport. This morning, she recalls her podium finish in the 2009 Boston Marathon, Terror at the Finish Line in 2013, and why she'll always love running. And warning, this piece contains audio that may be disturbing to some listeners. I grew up in northern Minnesota. I was actually born in New York, but my father died a week before my fourth birthday. And so, yeah, I grew up up north, northern Minnesota. I'm very proud of that. I have it tattooed on my body. I think that it really influenced who I became. I actually love the Newton Hills the most. I feel like that's when I felt most connected to the community, and I really like that part of the course. I know a lot of people fear it, but I grew up in a town that's hilly, and in the downtown there's all these cool old homes, and so it reminded me of that when I would run there. That 2009 Boston Marathon, I felt really calm. I felt excited. I knew I had put in a lot of work. I knew that the course suited me. I felt like everything was coming together as it was supposed to. We started 
And it was just so slow. It was almost like everyone was afraid of everyone. And, you know, I kept thinking at some point it'll break open. I felt a little bit uncomfortable because I felt like I was chopping my stride a lot. But, I, you know, my the instructions for my coach were, I don't make a single move until I turn on to Boylston. So I was just like kind of waiting it out and running through. But I just couldn't take it anymore. And with about 10K to go, I just opened up my legs and I immediately felt better. I immediately felt like, oh, okay, now I'm running. Now this is what I'm doing, what I'm ready for. And then someone from the press truck yelled, be careful, you're running five-minute mile pace. And I, I kind of slammed on the brakes. You know, I don't have a lot of regrets, but I regret that. And... It came down to, I think there was like four or five of us, and then it whittled down, and I was running on the rail. I really liked to run on the rail. I was like feeling the energy from everybody. But again, I didn't feel like I was in full flight. And then with about a mile to go, there was two women who kind of came up alongside me, and the legs just weren't there. And as we turned on Boylston, I couldn't, like, I just couldn't believe this was happening. They were just slipping further and further away. American Kara Goucher led the race going into the final mile, but was outkicked and finished third nine seconds behind. Koske crossed the finish line less than a stride ahead of the finish. So I was training with Shlaine Flanagan in 2013, and she had never run the Boston Marathon. I was dinged up a little bit after the Olympics, and I had a setback in the preparation, but you know, it's a marathon, you never know. So I still thought I had an outside chance. I think around mile 23 or 24, Rita Jeptu made a big move and I couldn't switch the gears that quick. I was the second American. I think I ran 226 and I thought like almost a little sense of relief, like that could have been a lot worse, you know? And then it was just like any other marathon. You know, we moved on to media, and I had asked my family to go get me lunch. So we all met back at my hotel room. It was my sister, my mom, my son, my husband, and my aunt. And then we just heard something I've never heard, like the, this boom. And literally, like, I could feel it. Like, I could feel it in my chest and in the, in the way the windows rattled. I had never experienced anything like that in my life, and I immediately was terrified. And I feel guilty even talking about this because I didn't lose anyone that I loved that day. But it was just so scary. It just was, like, a, a really big loss of innocence, I think, for me. Um... Loving the sport and realizing that people could potentially be vulnerable and in danger just watching their loved ones, it just really affected me and the way I looked at running after that. But, you know, at the end of the day, it was like, no, this is a beautiful thing that we do and that we experience and that we have this community with and we're not going to let them ruin it. That 2014 Boston Marathon was an incredibly healing experience. I mean, this is, it is a dream come true for Meb Kofleski, for the city of Boston. It felt like the community was just embracing all of the emotions and all of the love. And so 
I'm really glad I was at that particular marathon as a fan because I got to see it and some of the fear dissipated just by being there. I used to think like when I couldn't win an Olympic medal anymore, like why would I do it? And I, I love it just as much now as I did then. I loved running before I knew I was good at it. And I'm glad I was good at it. It completely changed my life. I had some of the most incredible experiences, but I feel like now I'm at that point back to when I discovered it. I mean, I don't have any fitness goals or racing goals or anything like that anymore, but I look forward to my run every single day. I mean, even like, and it's not for anyone but me. I just feel free. I feel free. Kara Goucher's memoir is called The Longest Race. This piece was produced by Chloe Axelson. For more coverage of today's marathon and a look back at 2013, visit WBUR.org. Coming up in about 30 minutes, we'll get a preview of today's race from WBUR's Alex Ashlock. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sunbug Solar, helping to grow renewable energy in Massachusetts since 2009. To learn about solar energy employment opportunities, visit sunbugsolar.com. I'm All Things Considered host Lisa Mullins, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Court papers reveal that a Massachusetts Air National Guard member charged with leaking military secrets online may have more documents about U.S. national defense. It's Monday, April 17th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, explosions rock the capital of Sudan as international concern grows over violence there. Also, scientists say there's still hope for the planet's melting glaciers if we cut down on greenhouse gas emissions. We will see retreat, but most of that ice we could expect to continue to be there for thousands of years. And the sour. Marathon is life. It has ups and downs. Challenges arrive. You press on. You press on. We hear from some of the elite athletes hoping to win this year's Boston Marathon, which begins later this morning. Foggy and cloudy this morning, near 60, with rain possible this afternoon. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Authorities in the town of Dadeville, Alabama, say four people were killed in a shooting at a birthday party Saturday. Law enforcement officials say 28 more people were injured. But they won't say if they know who the suspect is or if they died in the shooting or whether that person is still at large in the community. From Troy Public Radio, Kyle Gassett says that lack of information is upsetting residents. They're frustrated and don't understand why the police are being so tight-lipped. As you know, in other mass shootings by this point, a day or two after the event, there's typically a good idea about the circumstances and some clues about what happened and why. And in this case, we really have none of that. Kyle Gassett reporting. In Kansas City, Missouri, hundreds of protesters gathered outside the home of a man who shot and seriously wounded a black teenager. The boy had accidentally rung his doorbell because he had gone to the wrong address by mistake. From member station KCUR, Savannah Holly Bates reports the boy is now in a medically induced coma. The homeowner shot 16-year-old Ralph Yarl twice in the head through a glass door. The shooter was taken into custody but released after a 24-hour hold and is not currently facing charges. 
More than 300 people gathered outside the shooter's home Sunday, demanding he face prosecution and possible hate crime charges. Justice Gatson of Real Justice Network spoke at the protest. My son delivers food every morning, and some of y'all do too. And sometimes you go to a wrong address. Yeah. I know you do. Yeah. And you should never, ever have to worry that your life will be taken. Kansas City Police Chief Stacey Graves said the shooter was released pending further investigation. For NPR News, I'm Savannah Holly Bates in Kansas City. Residents evacuated from near a dangerous fire in eastern Indiana last week are being allowed to go home. The people were moved because smoke from the fire is toxic. Some debris may contain the carcinogen asbestos. Violence is continuing in Sudan, where that country's military is fighting members of a paramilitary group. As Michael Koloki reports, nearly 100 people have been killed and more than 1,000 other people injured over the past few days. As Monday dawned, the sound of gunfire and explosions was heard in various parts of Sudan as battles continued between the Sudanese military and the Rapid Support Forces, a paramilitary group primarily comprised of militias that fought in a war in the country's Darfur region. There have been growing calls for a ceasefire in the fighting. Neighboring Egypt has offered to mediate between both sides, while the regional cooperation bloc IGAD, of which Sudan is a member, plans to send a delegation of presidents from Eastern Africa to the Sudanese capital Khartoum to embark on reconciliation talks. Meanwhile, the United States, China and Russia have also appealed for a quick end to the fighting. For NPR News, I am Michael Kaloki in Nairobi. This is NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. The 127th Boston Marathon gets underway in just about an hour. Buses filled with athletes are arriving at the starting line in Hopkinton. That's where we find WBOR's Alex Ashlock. Good morning, Alex. Who are you waiting to see today? I'm waiting to see world record holder Elliot Kipchoge of Kenya. He's running Boston for the first time. He's the clear favorite in the men's race, but the women's race is wide open. There are three past winners running today, along with last year's world champion marathoner. In the women's wheelchair race, four-time champion Manuela Schar of Switzerland is here. She says she's recovered from injuries she suffered after winning Boston last year. I'm excited. It's been a weird roller coaster year, so now I feel like I'm back where I belong, and um, yeah, I'm feeling feeling great. American Daniel Romanchuk is the defending champion in the men's wheelchair race. He'll be challenged by another athlete from Switzerland, Marcel Hoog. He's won the Boston Marathon wheelchair race five times, Rupa. You've covered the marathon for us for years. Is there anything different there at the starting line this year? You know, it is different here. There's all these tents set up, and they're bringing the elite athletes into the tents, which I've never seen before. They usually wait at the church across the street. So uh, I actually had a chance to just chat with Ernst Van Dyke. He's a wheelchair athlete. He's won the Boston Marathon 10 times. And Rupa, this is his final appearance in Boston. He's retiring from marathon racing, and this is his 22nd Boston Marathon. So it was good to see him. He was out sort of testing the weather conditions and talking about how foggy it is out here. So we'll be watching to see what happens in the races today. All right. That's Alice, Alex Ashlock in Hopkinton. We'll be checking in with him throughout the morning. Thank you, Alex. You're welcome. 
The MBTA is running its subway lines and commuter rail trains on a weekday schedule today. Buses will run on a Saturday schedule. The Copley Square T station will be closed all day because of the marathon. Anyone headed to the finish line should use one of the nearby stations such as Arlington, Hines or Back Bay. The Jewish Holocaust Day of Remembrance, called Yom HaShoah, begins this evening. It comes at a time when anti-Semitic incidents are on the rise. WBOR's Amy, Amy Sokolow reports on a Holocaust survivor in Cambridge who's sharing his story. Jack Trumpeter was born in Amsterdam in August 1942. That same week, his father, along with 200 other Jewish men, were rounded up and beaten by the Nazis. His parents made the difficult choice to give him up to a Dutch Christian couple so they could hide him. Trumpeter's family eventually reunited and moved to the U.S. He says his story offers hope. How do we teach young people about this without totally bumming them out? They need to be left with some sense of agency and optimism. And that is why I do my talking. Trumpeter is grateful for the strangers who risked their lives to protect him. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amy Sokolow. It's 8.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Chapel Hill Chauncey Hall School, Waltham, where students in grades 7 through 12 achieve their best. Open House, April 23rd, chch.org slash open house. The Bruins begin their playoff run tonight at the Garden. They'll take on the Florida Panthers in game one of their best of seven series. The Red Sox and Angels play later this morning at Fenway in the annual Patriots Day game. The Sox beat the Angels yesterday 2-1. Mostly cloudy today with a chance for rain or a thunderstorm early in the afternoon. It'll get near 60 today. Clearing overnight, temperatures near 50 tonight. Mostly sunny tomorrow and in the 60s. Mostly sunny again on Wednesday and in the upper 50s. It's 49 degrees in Boston at 8.08. WBUR supporters include CFP, Certified Financial Planner Professionals, committed to acting in their clients' best interests. Learn more at letsmakeaplan.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. The biggest media trial in decades was supposed to start today in Wilmington, Delaware. Yeah, Dominion Voting Systems is suing Fox News over lies it broadcast about the company and its voting machines in the 2020 election. And everything seemed ready to go. And then the judge put the trial on pause for at least 24 hours. NPR's David Folkenflik joins us now from Wilmington. Uh, David, what's uh, been going on with this? Well, we've been able to confirm from two sources that, in fact, there are talks going on between the legal team for Fox Corporation, Fox News on the one side and Dominion Voting Systems on the other. Dominion, of course, is seeking a 10-figure sum from Fox uh, for what it says were defamatory statements made about it, saying it was trying to toss the election to Joe Biden back in 2020. Uh, Fox was, voluminous evidence show, trying to curry favor with Trump voters who were alienated uh, by Fox's reports. You can bet that Fox is trying to reach a settlement. It has shown in past uh, times of uh, legal challenges that when things get tough enough, uh, particularly right towards uh, the moment of greatest legal perils, they're willing to pay, particularly if it's going to get close to the Murdoch family that really controls ultimately the network and its parent company. Now, Dominion has a strong hand, according to all the lawyers I've talked to, and yet even if it wins, proving damages will be tough. You know, we've done reporting on that very question, and some of it's pretty nebulous and ambiguous in terms of the losses they suffered. In addition, even if they win, 
This will be appealed for years by Fox. It could be tied up in court. And you, you could imagine appellate court reducing how much money they win. They're seeking $1.6 billion. The Wall Street Journal is reporting they've agreed to soften how much they're asking for by about $600 million, according to court documents they've obtained. We're going to see how that plays out. If they were to settle, David, what would that sound like? Well, there are two key elements here. I mean, you've got to imagine what is to any reasonable person a galactically large number in the many, many hundreds of millions of dollars to settle this. They, you know, would love to have a billion dollar over in Dominion. This is something, whatever it is, that Fox could easily uh, fork over. They have billions of dollars uh, in reserve and they make billions of dollars a year in profit because largely of Fox News media. The second element may be tougher. It's an acknowledgement of wrongdoing by Fox, which in a sense would be an apology. Dominion has wanted that to be presented to the public as prominently as a lot of these lies were, which would mean on major shows and more than once uh, to their viewers. That's not something that they might get from a jury, but that's something they'd want from a settlement. The more stingy the apology, I think the higher the dollar figure would have to be for Dominion voting systems to, to, to settle. David, how important is this case to understanding Fox News and the media? Well, we've been reporting on this for quite some time, right? I mean, the lawsuit was filed back in spring of 2021. And as we've gotten closer, the more media lawyers I've talked to uh, suggest that this is one of the most important in about four decades. It'll indicate how much running room the press has to get things wrong and for there to be free speech, but also how to what degree the media can be held responsible. And additionally, it tells us a ton about Fox News, a huge news organization, but really a huge political and cultural presence in our country and the cynicism that ran through it. Obviously, at this point, Fox desperately wants to stay out of court, keep Rupert Murdoch and others off the witness stand. That's NPR media correspondent David Folkenflick. David, thanks. You bet. All right, now a story about ice. That is the sound of summertime in Greenland, where ice is rapidly melting. As the climate gets hotter, the world's ice sheets and glaciers are disappearing. And surprisingly, that's affecting people thousands of miles away. All this week, NPR's Climate Desk is looking at those effects. And reporters Lauren Summer and Rebecca Hersher are here with us now with more. So thousands of miles away, uh, Lauren, that sounds like it is not believable, that it's not possible. Explain that. Yeah, I mean, ice can feel really far away, right? It's at the very ends of the planet. But ice is deeply connected to the rest of the world because it influences fundamental things like weather patterns and oceans. Those are connections that travel a really long way. And the reason for that is because these are vast amounts of ice we're talking about. They're just really huge parts of the planet. And I I went to see some of it with NPR producer Ryan Kelman, and we hiked up Greenland's ice sheet. And it really is like climbing a mountain. It's three times the size of Texas. And the melt is really striking. You know, some of the ice was covered in these little pools of water. It kind of looked like Swiss cheese. Other parts just had big rushing rivers of meltwater. Greenland is losing about 280 billion tons of ice a year. And researchers are trying to figure out just how much more that melt is going to accelerate. Rebecca, why is it so hard to figure that out? You know, these are really, really massive areas. So they they don't melt the way like an ice cube would, you know, gently liquefying in the sun. These are dynamic, complex places. They are the size of entire states. And all kinds of things influence them. You know, dust and algae and snow all affect how ice absorbs the heat from the sun. Also, the ice is cracking as it melts. So one scientist who studies Antarctica explained it 
like this to me. It's like a windshield. So, you know, like a little pebble hits your windshield, it makes a tiny crack. It might stay tiny for months. And then for no discernible reason, boom, it turns into a really big crack. And in the case of ice, a big chunk can fall into the ocean. And melting actually creates more melting. The meltwater itself speeds up the whole process. So predicting exactly how quickly these massive ice sheets and glaciers will disappear as the Earth is heating up, it, it's really hard, but, you know, really important. But Rebecca, tell us about some of the unexpected connections between this melting ice and, and people's just everyday lives. Yeah, so let's start with sea level rise. So that's one of the major threats from climate change. And obviously, melting ice contributes to sea level rise around the world. But here's something a lot of people don't know. The ocean is not like a bathtub where like melting ice is the faucet and the water rises uniformly everywhere. The ocean has currents. It has topography. It's super complicated. And so there are special relationships between specific places and specific ice that's melting. For example, the melting ice in West Antarctica will disproportionately affect sea level rise in Texas. You know, some of the other connections to ice are less obvious, maybe, like sea ice in the Arctic can actually affect the weather we see in the U.S. Lauren, why is that? So ice is really bright white, right? It's kind of blinding. And in the Arctic, it reflects a lot of sunlight. The sea ice is shrinking, though, and without it, more sunlight is warming the ocean. And scientists are finding that heat seems to be influencing weather patterns that ripple all the way down to the lower 48. And it could mean more hot, dry weather in the western U.S. during wildfire season. Uh, Melting ice also means a lot of fresh water is pouring into the oceans where it can change the ocean currents in a way that harms entire ecosystems of animals. So all this sounds really, really dire. Uh, Rebecca, what does the future... I mean, is there any way at all to avoid some of these effects? You know, to be honest, some of these changes cannot be avoided. For example, some amount of sea level rise is going to happen in the next few decades, no matter how quickly greenhouse gas emissions fall. So we'll need to adapt our homes and our cities to deal with that no matter what. But if you look just a little bit further into the future, it's a totally different story. The decisions that we collectively make right now about greenhouse gas emissions, they do have profound effects later this century. Yeah, and actually, uh, Twyla Moon, who is deputy lead scientist at the National Sow and Ice Data Center, she talked to us about that. We are 110% not too late. (laughs) If we take strong action to reduce climate change and to rein in greenhouse gases, we can preserve the vast majority. We will see retreat, but most of that ice we could expect to continue to be there for thousands of years. You know, Twyla, like a lot of scientists we spoke to, really emphasized just how drastic the changes they've seen firsthand are, and that the planet we know today, it looks the way it does because of ice. Our coastlines and our weather are all shaped by that frozen water. It's why scientists, you know, are working to understand all these complicated connections as they're changing because the stakes are incredibly high. That's Lauren Summer and Rebecca Hersher from NPR's Climate Desk. Their stories on the far-reaching effects of ice air all this week, and you can catch the next story later today on All Things Considered. Lauren, Rebecca, thanks. Thanks. Thank you.
The Ukrainian government relies on billions of dollars in direct aid from the U.S. to keep its emergency and public services running during the war. That's kept a sense of normalcy in Ukraine, even after 14 months of Russian missile attacks. The way Ukraine spends this money is strictly monitored, but now the U.S. wants to strengthen that transparency. NPR's Joanna Kakissis reports from Kyiv. The U.S. has committed nearly $23 billion in direct budget support to the Ukrainian government since the war began. The money goes to pay doctors, nurses, teachers, first responders, the most essential workers, says Valentin Stepanitz, who lives in Kyiv. Without this help, he says, it would be very difficult for us, especially during this time of war. Ukraine receives U.S. aid as reimbursements for expenses through the World Bank. Washington also reviews use of those funds with the accounting firm Deloitte. Samantha Power, who's the U.S. Agency for International Development's administrator, says the U.S. wants to help Ukraine improve its budget transparency. Even as the missiles fall, they are trying still to strengthen their democracy and grow their institutions and their checks and balances. USAID says it will invest another $20 million to boost the oversight of Ukraine's management of assistance funds. Power says this money will expand reviews by Deloitte and also establish an independent audit of direct budget support payments. The key to accountability is having a robust system in place to provide the American people, the Congress, the Biden administration, all of us, with the assurance that this generous support is going directly to the Ukrainian people where it belongs. In the central city of Dnipro, retiree Valentina Kubashevich says most Ukrainians want more transparency in government. And she welcomes any opportunity for help. Joanna Kakissis, NPR News, Kyiv. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, we preview arguments before the U.S. Supreme Court tomorrow about whether hundreds of major retail pharmacies across the country knowingly overcharged Medicaid and Medicare. And at 8.55, the secret to training for some of this year's Boston Marathon runners was audiobooks. It's 8.20. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. Mornings are dark this time of year, and the news can feel that way too. Morning Edition from NPR News helps keep you informed, not overwhelmed. Listen for a brighter start to your day. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ThoughtForms Custom Builders, building healthy, high-performance homes for families and for the future, supporting Riverside Community Care, helping make a difference in the community by delivering innovative and compassionate behavioral health care and human services. More at riversidecc.org and thoughtforms-corp.com. It may be a holiday, but our dependable daily newsletter is still in your email inbox. In it, you'll learn more about today's Boston Marathon and see some great photos from this weekend's Festival of Golden Retrievers. They met up to honor Spencer. 
the late official Boston Marathon dog. Sign up to get to WBUR today every day. Just visit WBUR.org slash newsletters. In your forecast, foggy and cloudy this morning. There's a good chance of showers early this afternoon. We may also see a thunderstorm. The high will be near 57. Tonight, a slight chance of more showers in the early evening, then cloudy. Temperatures will fall to a low of 51. Tomorrow, partly sunny with a high near 61. It's 49 degrees in Boston at 821. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Proven Winners Color Choice, offering flowering shrubs and evergreens to help gardeners express their creativity outdoors. At garden centers nationwide, provenwinnerscolorchoice.com slash NPR. From Easy Cater, committed to helping companies find food for meetings and team lunches, with catering menus from restaurants nationwide, online ordering, and 24-7 live support. EasyCater.com. From Zoom, Zoom One is designed for AI-powered collaboration across phone, video, messaging, whiteboards, and work apps, keeping global teams connected. One platform to connect, Zoom One. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. And I'm A. Martinez. Tomorrow, the U.S. Supreme Court hears arguments in a case that could undermine one of the government's most powerful tools for fighting fraud in government contracts and programs. Here's NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg. The False Claims Act dates back to the Civil War when it was enacted to combat rampant fraud by private contractors who were overbilling or simply not delivering goods to the troops. But the law over time was weakened by congressional amendments. Then, in 1986, Congress toughened the law and later toughened it again. The primary Senate sponsor was then and still is Iowa Republican Charles Grassley. We wanted to anticipate and block every avenue that uh, creative lawyers might use to allow a contractor to escape liability for overcharging. Now he's alarmed by a case before the Supreme Court this week. At issue is whether hundreds of major retail pharmacies across the country knowingly overcharged Medicaid and Medicare by overstating what their usual and customary prices are. If they did, under the law, they would be liable for triple damages. The case essentially began in 2006 when Walmart upended the retail pharmacy world by offering large numbers of frequently used drugs at very cheap prices, $4 for a 30-day supply with automatic refills for cash customers. That left the rest of the retail pharmacy industry trying to figure out how to compete. They came up with various offers that matched Walmart's prices for cash customers, but they billed Medicaid and Medicare using far higher prices, not what the government now says were in fact their usual and customary prices. Walmart did report its discounted cash prices as usual and customary, but other chains did not. Even as discounted prices became the majority of their cash sales, other retail pharmacies continued to bill the government at the previous and far higher prices. For example, between 2008 and 2012, Safeway charged just $10 for almost all its cash sales for a 90-day supply of a top-selling drug to reduce cholesterol. But it did not report $10 as its usual and customary price. Instead, Safeway told Medicare and Medicaid that its usual and customary prices ranged from $81 to 
$109 for the drug. Acting under the False Claims Act, two whistleblowers brought suit on behalf of the government, alleging that SuperValue and Safeway built the taxpayers of $200 million. But the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that the chains had not acted knowingly, even if they, quote, might suspect, believe, or intend to file a false claim. And the appeals court further said that evidence about what the company and its executives knew is irrelevant as a matter of law. The whistleblowers appealed to the Supreme Court, joined by the federal government, 33 states, and Senator Grassley. It's just contrary to what we intended. That test uh, makes a hash of the law of fraud. The statute is very specific. It says that a person or business knowingly defrauds the government when it presents a false or fraudulent claim for payment, and it defines knowingly as, quote, actual knowledge or deliberate ignorance or reckless disregard of the truth or falsity of the claim. These are three distinct mental states, and it can be any one of them. SuperValue and Safeway would not allow their lawyers to be interviewed for this broadcast, but in their briefs they argued that a strict intent requirement is required to hold businesses accountable under the statute. They're backed by a variety of business interests, among them defense contractors represented by lawyer Beth Brinkman in this case. This is a punitive law, she maintains, because it imposes harsh monetary penalties for wrongful conduct without clear enough agency guidance. Ultimately, she argues, the question is not one of facts. And if there's more than one reasonable interpretation of the law and your claim is consistent with one of those, you don't know that it's false. Tejinder Singh, representing the whistleblowers, scoffs at that interpretation, calling it an after-the-fact justification for breaking the law. It has nothing to do with what you believed at the time you acted. It has everything to do with what you can make up afterward. A decision in the case is expected by summer. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. Ahmad Jamal, storied jazz pianist and band leader, has died at 92. His career spanned over seven decades. Jamal's 1958 album, At the Pershing But Not For Me, stayed on the charts for 108 weeks. In 2014, he told NPR he kind of saw it coming. I just knew that we had something of value. I had the feeling that it was going to be a success. Not to the extent that, no, of course, you can't be that clairvoyant. Jamal inspired countless jazz musicians. Including Miles Davis, who once said, all my inspiration comes from Ahmad Jamal. His lush playing has also been widely sampled by hip-hop artists. Pianist Jason Moran isn't at all surprised by Jamal's enduring appeal. Ahmad is timeless in a way that almost doesn't age. So there's something about what he, how he perforates the music, the air that he kind of infuses into it that always allows for the contemporary listener, no matter what decade they're in, to kind of fit themselves inside or have a moment to digest a crazy phrase he just played, you know. Jamal played shows and released new recordings well into his 80s. He reflected on the inevitability of death. 
You can't take anything with you. Only thing that's going in there is what did you do? What did you do? That's all that's going in there. Because paradise and hell begin right here, in my opinion. I've experienced both a little bit, just a little bit. I hope I can experience a whole lot of paradise in this world and in the hereafter. Believe me. Ahmad Jamal leaves a little bit of paradise for the rest of us to enjoy. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, we talk to WBUR's marathon reporter Alex Ashlock for a rundown of what to expect today. It's 8.30. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The U.S. ambassador to Russia, Lynn Tracy, is denouncing today's sentencing of a Russian activist and journalist to a lengthy prison term. The court's decision today to sentence Vladimir Karamurza to 25 years in prison is an attempt to silence dissent in this country. We will continue to call for his release. Tracy was courtesy of the BBC. Karamurza was convicted of treason for publicly denouncing Russia's invasion of Ukraine. He's been a prominent critic of Russian President Vladimir Putin. More fighting is reported today in Sudan, where the military is fighting a paramilitary group for control of the country. The group is known as the Rapid Support Forces, or RSF. Nearly 100 people are reported to have been killed since Saturday. NPR's Emmanuel Akinwotu says residents are staying indoors in the capital, Khartoum, and elsewhere. When I've been talking to people in Khartoum, they've shared about how places they used to eat, buy groceries, see family and friends, have basically been turned into a battlefield right before their eyes. And this is truly the nightmare end to a power struggle between the army and the RSF. SpaceX is scheduled to launch its massive Starship rocket on a test flight next hour along the Gulf Coast of Texas. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. A Massachusetts Air National Guard member accused of leaking some classified documents may have more of them. An FBI special agent tells the Boston Globe they expect to find more documents after searching the Dighton home of Jack Teixeira. Deshera is charged with leaking military secrets, including information about the war in Ukraine. He's due back in court on Wednesday. Today is Marathon Monday. It's also Patriots Day, marking the start of the American Revolution. A reenactment began on the Lexington Green at dawn. In Lincoln yesterday, there was a fife and drum festival. Brendan Manning is part of a fife and drum corps. He says April is a hectic time for him and his crew. It's also kind of the part of the year when, like, we're the coolest thing in every parade. And there's tons of people who come and see us. So it's really, it's a great opportunity for us to be able to show people everything that we do. The revolution began on April 19th, 1775, with the battles of Lexington and Concord. The Red Sox are hitting more home runs, and researchers say that's due in part to climate change. Experts at Dartmouth College say at least 1% of all home runs hit in Major League Baseball since 2010 are linked to warm weather. When the air is warmer, it's less dense and balls can fly farther. Chris Callahan is one of the authors of a new study. So when I go to a baseball game, I'll be thinking about the ways in which 
there might be more home runs in that game. And there also might be risks to people at the ballpark from extreme heat, for example. And so it just makes me more conscious of the ways that climate change has sort of snaked its way into every part of our lives. Callahan says playing games at night could help mitigate the effects of temperature on home runs. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. First pitch at Fenway is just after 11 this morning for the annual Patriots Day game. The Red Sox are hosting the Los Angeles Angels. Boston beat L.A. yesterday 2-1. to one. Tonight at the Garden, it's game one in the playoff series between the Bruins and Florida Panthers. A high in the upper 50s today under foggy and cloudy skies that may give way to showers and a thunderstorm beginning early this afternoon. Tonight, temperatures fall to the low 50s and there's another slight chance of rain tomorrow partly sunny and a high in the low 60s. It's 49 degrees in Boston at 834. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct virtual interviews all in one place. Indeed.com slash NPR. This is WB Wars Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Today is Patriots Day, also known as Marathon Monday. The 127th edition of the Boston Marathon gets underway in about a half hour. Our marathon correspondent, Alex Ashlog, joins us now from the start line in Hopkinton for a preview. Good morning, Alex. Good morning, Rupa. Is there one big thing we should know about this year's race? There is one big thing, at least in my opinion, and it's a chance to see the world's greatest marathoner right now, maybe the world's greatest marathoner ever in person, or at least on TV. Kenyon Elliott Kipchoge is the man. He's running the Boston Marathon for the first time. His running resume, Rupa, is pages long. Here are some of the highlights. He's a two-time Olympic marathon champion. He holds the world record in the event, and he's already ready for the next challenge. Marathon is life. It has ups and downs. The moment you run in a good way, but challenges arrive, you press on, you press on. It's about challenging yourself. His new challenge is winning the Boston Marathon. He's already won Tokyo, London, Berlin, and Chicago. If he wins Boston and then maybe New York later, that would give him wins in all six major marathons around the world. He's an amazing athlete. It sounds like. So he is definitely the favorite. But these marathons don't always play out the way we think they will, right? No, that's true. A lot happens in these marathons that you might not expect. Um, The winner can be a total surprise today if it's not Kipchoge. He'll be challenged by a number of talented and experienced runners, including two other Kenyans who have won here before. That's Evans Chibet. He won last year's race. And Benson Kiparoto won the won the 2021 Boston Marathon. Those guys trained together, and they joked at the press conference the other day they might work together to try to make things a little bit uncomfortable for Kipchoge. But that's going to be a a stiff challenge because he tends to determine the pace of these marathons and everyone watches him. And when he goes, you either have to go with him or you are left in his dust. (laughs) 
So who are the American men we should know about in the race? Well, one of the names that I'm interested in watching today is Scott Fobble. He could have another good race here today. This will be his fourth Boston Marathon. He finished seventh last year and back in 2019 finished seventh as well. He told me he's fit and ready to go. Obviously, when there are some people like Kipchoge in there, then you kind of have to be open to a number of possibilities in the race. And I think I'm prepared to run fast and I'm prepared to run well and I've run this race enough times and I've run it well where I I feel comfortable kind of rolling with the punches. Am I right you'll be watching this year's race on the women's press truck so what are you watching for in the women's event? Yeah I'll be on the women's press truck which runs ahead of the lead women and I'm expecting that race to be really amazing. It's an incredibly strong field More than a dozen women in the race today have run marathons under two hours and 21 minutes. The list of those women is very long, but it includes Gati Tom Gabrosolesi of Ethiopia. She won the 2022 World Championship Marathon. She did it in event record time. There's also Lona Salpeter of Israel. She was second at the New York City Marathon last last November. Amane Bariso is from Ethiopia as well. She ran the third fastest time ever for a women's marathon in Valencia last December. Among the Americans, Rupa, Des Linden, she's such a fan favorite here in Boston. She won in 2018, finished second in 2011. She's running Boston for the 10th time. A lot of people will be cheering for her. There's also Nell Rojas. She's the top American here the last two years. And Alphine Tulimuk, she was seventh in last year's New York City Marathon. I think there's so many amazing women in this field that I don't even have to have a plan. I just have to make sure that when the moves are made, I go with it. The wheelchair racers take off before the elite runners and athletes from Switzerland have dominated the field in the past few years. Do you expect that to continue? I would not be surprised if that continued today. Their names are Marcel Hoog and Manuela Schar. Let's start with Shar. She's a four-time wheelchair winner here. She certainly wants to win number five, but really, Rupa, she's just happy to be healthy this year. I'm excited to be back. This was the last race I did before my injury last year. <laughs> so I just got back from, from Boston, and two days later I broke my leg yesterday, uh, last year. So it's been a weird roller coaster year. So now I feel like I'm back where I belong, and um, yeah, I'm feeling, feeling great. And Marcella Hoog, also of Switzerland, has won this race five times. I asked him why he has so much, much success here, and uh, he shook his head when he answered. Here he is. I don't know. I mean, it's just like um, the course. It's a great course. It's a great marathon, very special marathon. It's something you, you always want to try to win and give your best. He always rises to the occasion in these big marathons, except last year when he had to withdraw from the race on race morning with an injury, and that left an opening for an American named Daniel Romanchuk, and he filled that opening by winning his second Boston Marathon. I try and learn from the the past, but really not take it into account too much. Every race is, is a new race. Even if you have the same field and, you know, the same weather conditions, it's going to be different. And so go in with a plan, but always ready to adapt. Rupa, I want to tip my cap to South African Ernst Van Dyck. He's one of the greatest competitors in Boston Marathon history. He's won this marathon 10 times. He's raced it 22 times, and this year's Boston Marathon will be his last. Rupa, Marcel Hoog told me he was so excited when he got Van Dyck's autograph when he was a young wheelchair racer. They'll be racing against each other here in Boston for the final time today. (laughs) 
So this is the first year with a category specifically for non-binary athletes. How many yeah. runners are registered in that way? Well, the Boston Marathon said, or the Boston Athletic Association, I should, I should say, says there are 27 athletes in that category in the Boston Marathon today. It's part of the Boston Athletic Association's efforts to make the race more inclusive. Boston Athletic Association President Jack Fleming listed the athletes that are running today or competing today, professional and para female, male, non-binary. There are Boston qualifiers, and there are also those running for nonprofit organizations raising important funds for charity. So it's a more inclusive marathon, and that's the BAA's goal. Okay, and of course, this year marks 10 years since the Boston Mm -hmm. Marathon bombings. Will today's race reflect that in any way? I think it will. Three-time World Series champion and Red Sox legend David Ortiz will be serving as the Grand Marshal this year. He'll, he'll be riding in a car, leading the runners on their way from Hopkinton to Boston. Ortiz and other members of the 2013 Red Sox team, which won the World Series after the marathon bombings, were part of the weekend remembrances of the bombings. And Ortiz listeners will remember delivered that defiant speech at Fenway Park a few days after the bombings 10 years ago. And uh, that, that was an emotional experience. It was an emotional weekend in Boston as we marked the 10 years since uh, that horrible day in April of uh, 2013. So I, thought, I think that'll be on the minds of people as the race gets underway today. Yeah, I'm sure. Hard to believe it's 10 years ago. WBUR's yeah. marathon reporter Alex Ashlock, thank you so much for being out there for us today. You're welcome, Rupa. Funding for WBUR Boston Marathon coverage comes from Marathon Sports, supporting runners, walkers, and fitness enthusiasts from their first step all the way to the finish line. MarathonSports.com. In your forecast, WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce says it's mostly good news for runners today. Temperatures will be in the 50s along the marathon route and throughout much of the day today, although away from the coast will be near 60 for a high. Scattered showers will move through from time to time. That will take away some body heat from runners, make the course a little bit slick. Spectators should have the umbrella or raincoat. It won't be raining the entire time, though. There will be some lulls. Runners will also be contending with a headwind, generally 5 to 15 miles per hour the entire race shifting slightly to the east-southeast during the late afternoon. This afternoon may bring a thunderstorm. More showers possible early this evening. Then it'll be cloudy and in the low 50s. Tomorrow, partly sunny and in the low 60s. It's 49 degrees in Boston at 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge. Real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. Today's marathon is expected to kick off a busy tourism season for Boston. The city's tourism bureau, Meet Boston, says other sporting events, concerts, and major conferences will draw more visitors this spring and summer. WBOR Zininjor and Wameka reports. Public health restrictions and concerns about the pandemic slowed the tourism sector's recovery. But Meet Boston CEO Martha Sheridan expects the city will be bursting at the seams over the next several months as major events come to town. In spite of some inflationary pressure, people are still wanting to take their trips. They're not giving up travel. That pent-up demand is still real for us. Sheridan expects NBA and NHL playoff games, new concert venues, and the NAACP convention to bring in more visitors. 
For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Zaninjor and Wameka. It's 845. WBUR supporters include BMW. With a range of up to 301 miles, the BMW i4 is 100% electric and 100% BMW. The first all-electric BMW i4 is available at your local BMW centers. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm A. Martinez. Every good villain needs an assistant, right? Somebody to carry out their evil plans. One of the biggest, baddest villains of all time, Bram Stoker's Dracula, has got Renfield, a sniveling wretch who does whatever the legendary vampire commands them to do. A new horror comedy film opened this weekend. It's called Renfield, and this time the assistant becomes the hero. Nicholas Holt plays Renfield in modern-day New Orleans as he tries to extricate himself from his very toxic relationship with his bad boss, played by Nicholas Cage. Renfield, bring in innocent victims. I want a handful of nuns, a busload of cheerleaders. And I just want a normal life again. That's what we all want. Glenn Weldon hosts NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast, and he's here to place this new film in context. Glenn, thanks for being here. Ah, it's great to be here. <laughs> Perfect way to start. Now, okay, so they, they made this movie from the sidekick's point of view, which is one way to breathe some life into this old Dracula story. I mean, in theory, anyway, right? I mean, that's that's the idea, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, it is an old story, and they do throw some nods into the OG 1931 Dracula film, uh, in which Renfield was played by the great Dwight Fry, and that dude went big, so big that it still kind of defines how Renfield gets depicted on screen. And if you know that 1931 film, there's this one shot of Renfield staring up at us from the hold of the ship that brought Dracula to England. He's staring up at us, he's grinning like a freak, and he is laughing in, well, let's just call it a very distinctive way. Here's a clip. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is a big (laughs) slab of creep that has been laid down there, yeah. Yeah, and that performance uh, is so big that it's set in stone the two things that, if you know anything about Renfield, here's the two things you know. One, he eats bugs. And two, (laughs) that laugh. And other actors who've played Renfield have just basically copied it. Here's a couple examples. If you're hungry, master, we could ring for the night maid. (laughs) Don't be afraid. (laughs) That is uh, Artie Johnson and Peter McNichol in Love at First Bite and Dracula Dead and Loving It, respectively. So, okay, so in this new film, does Nicholas Holt go big? I mean, mean, does he do the laugh? Does he go for it? Yeah, well, he's playing a kind of depressed, disillusioned version of Renfield. And and when we meet him, he's kind of meek and buttoned up. But they do Mm -hmm. recreate scenes from the 1931 Dracula film, including that scene with Renfield in the ship laughing that Dwight Fry laugh. Now, I don't have a clip of that for you, but trust me. He, he, he brings it. He does it well. And he also eats plenty of bugs in this movie, like any good Renfield would. Only in this movie, eating bugs gives him superpowers because it's 2023, and I guess that's how we're doing things now. Yeah, people eat bugs these days. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a delicacy from what I've been told. Now, when you and your panel of guests reviewed Renfield for a pop culture happy hour, you all kind of came down eh, kind of meh on the film. Is that fair to say that uh, it was kind of a, a universal decision that it was a meh movie? Yeah, 
I mean, the movie's fine. It does what it says it's going to do in the box. It is pretty gory, which a lot of people want from a vampire film. And Cage is going full ham as Dracula. It may shock you to learn. But uh, the best thing about it is that premise, this toxic relationship between Renfield and Dracula. But in the end, we just get a lot of jokes about codependency. We don't get nearly enough time with Holt and Cage sharing the screen because that relationship is what's interesting. And the film just doesn't seem to want to trust that. All right, Glenn Weldon hosts NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast. Glenn, thanks a lot. <laughs> My pleasure. <laughs> This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Leila Fadel. This is 90.9 WBOR. At the top of the hour, it's the BBC with the sentencing of one of the Russian President Vladimir Putin's harshest critics. He's received 25 years in prison for treason. It's 849. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England. Zoo what makes you happy. Discover incredible wildlife and learn about nature at Boston's Franklin Park Zoo and Stone Zoo in Stoneham. ZooNewEngland.org. New emissions rules unveiled by the EPA recently can only be met if automakers are able to sell a lot more electric cars and trucks in the near future. The timeline for this is incredibly fast in an industry as big and as slow as the auto industry. Are consumers ready to buy more EVs? On All Things Considered, from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. In Alabama, investigators are looking for a motive in a shooting that killed four and injured dozens of others. SpaceX hopes to make history in the next hour in South Texas with the launch of one of the biggest rockets ever made. The 127th Boston Marathon kicks off with the first racers leaving Hopkinton in just about 10 minutes. The BBC will have the top global headlines in 10 minutes. And stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR, on the WBUR mobile app, and at WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Barry, and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. Upper 50s, foggy and cloudy this morning, a chance of showers and a thunderstorm this afternoon. Low 50s tonight and another chance of rain. Tomorrow, a mix of sun and clouds in the low 60s. Right now, it's 49 degrees in Boston at 851. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. May Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. Good morning. This is what Sudan's capital sounded like this weekend and today. The loud whir of jets followed by explosions. Tensions had been building for months between the two most powerful figures in the country's military government. On Saturday, that tension turned to fighting. For three straight days, the conflict between army troops and paramilitary forces have turned once quiet parts of Khartoum into what residents are describing as a war zone. Joining me now is Jeffrey Feltman, a former State Department special envoy for the Horn of Africa. Good morning. Uh, Good morning. So what's at the center of what residents are describing as a war in their capital right now? How did this start? I mean, it's basically um, a question of of lust for power. 
um, you had these two generals, as you mentioned, the two most powerful generals in the country and their respective security services that had a real marriage of convenience ever since the overthrow of Omar Bashir back in 2019, those heroic protests that, that were the engine behind the ouster of, of Omar Bashir. And this was a, this was a partnership based on, on, on mutual interests, mutual interests basically in undermining the civilian aspirations for democratic rule. Um, a partnership based on rejecting the idea of accountability for past crimes, including genocide in Darfur. So there's a lot of things that these two generals had in common that allowed them to overcome sort of ethnic, bureaucratic, institutional jealousies and rivalries. But in the end, that partnership did not define who would end up being on top. Um, ultimately, once they were able to sideline or derail the civilian transition. So what you have now is a fight to the death for, who's, for who is going to prevail um, should military rule continue in Sudan. So you point out this is a battle for supremacy between Sudan's military leader, Abdel Fattah Burhan, and the commander of the paramilitary rapid support forces who were allies. But is this conflict now the death knell to any civilian transition in Sudan? They demonstrated their contempt for the civilian transition in Sudan all the way back in October 2021 when they overthrew the civilian prime minister of, the, of Sudan, threw him, cabinet members, others in, others in jail. You know, they basically showed that those two generals are contemptuous of the civilian transition. But there's these heroic resistance committees that brute force have not... Um, have not tamed. You know, these were the engines behind the ouster of Omar Bashir back in 2019, these neighborhood decentralized, tireless committees. And I don't think that, that even this violence is going to stop their aspirations and their efforts to get to a democratic civilian transition in Sudan. Obviously, it's going to be much more harder and much more complicated, particularly if these two generals one or both survive this current violence since they've already made their views clear that they will never have civilian oversight Sudan security services. So so right now, obviously, what is needed is a ceasefire. It's the region is deploying three presidents um, to try to broker a ceasefire. But the ceasefire should not lead to another process by which the belligerents are able to divvy up the spoils of power under the guise of stability. Who has the um, ability to stop the violence? I mean, which countries, everybody's calling for it, including the U.S., to stop the violence? Is a ceasefire possible? Yeah, I think it's it's encouraging, first of all, to see the unity in the international community, whether you're talking about the Arab League or the African Union or or, um, various countries, you know, calling for a ceasefire. So you've got unity behind the idea of a ceasefire. But how do you you implement that in practice? And the sub-regional organization for the Horn of Africa, a group called EGAD, yesterday appointed three presidents, president of, 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 of Kenya, Djibouti, um, and South Sudan to go to Khartoum and try to mediate. And because the region has such interest in making sure that Sudan doesn't descend into total civil war because of the impact of the region, I think, I think that we should all get behind the regional efforts to end this conflict now. That's Jeffrey Feltman, former State Department Special Envoy for the Horn of Africa. Thank you so much for your time, Jeffrey. Thank you for having me. Thousands of runners are competing this morning in the Boston Marathon. Now, some of them have been preparing for the 26.2-mile run by listening to audiobooks while they train. Judith Kogan has more. There's a certain kind of runner who prefers audiobooks to music or podcasts. 
Lakshman Swami, scheduled to run in the marathon this morning, is one of them. I love listening to audiobooks even when I'm just kind of like cleaning dishes or whatever. But it's so different when I'm in motion. It brings a different quality to it. It brings it alive in a different way. It, it really kind of transports me there. You do want a particular sort of book for running. Easy to follow. Interesting, but not too challenging. On this score, memoirs rank high with marathoners, especially when narrated by an author like Prince Harry. When my wife and I fled this place, in fear for our sanity and physical safety. I wasn't sure when I'd ever come back. Memoirs are often about people who overcame or did something difficult. Marathoner Zach Brokenrope says this has special resonance for long-distance runners. The marathon, I think it is an innately difficult task for any of us to complete, no matter how fit we are, no matter how we are on our running journey. And so listening to someone else sharing their story while you're doing this, like, difficult thing, I think, creates an innate sense of intimacy between you uh, and the reader. Marathoners are people who tend to engage in repetitive behavior, and quite a few of them return to books already read or fall into rabbit holes. A couple of marathons ago, I got on a Civil War history binge. That's marathoner Ben French, also running this morning. Putting the pain of marathon training into perspective was this description of the Antietam battlefield. Hundreds of dead bodies lying in rows and in piles, looking the picture of all that is sickening, harrowing, horrible. French listened to a slew of Civil War histories. Novels on the Civil War as well, and then uh, got into Ron Chernow and listened to his biography of U.S. Grant. And those books are great in the sense that they're very long. <laughs> you just can listen for hours. As for Lakshman Swami, he used to rely on music for energy during runs, but found that that energy faded quickly. He'd always be switching to the next song. But with an audiobook, the climax is like so delightfully built. You know, my heart is pounding more from the suspense of what's happening in the book. I get more of a sustained release of adrenaline from that than I do from just music or even from, from running alone, right? Swami, who's a physician, says listening to stories activates the body the same way running does. The heart beats faster, blood flow increases, and breathing quickens. You're just adding gasoline to the fire. They just synergize so well. Just thinking about it like makes me want to get out there and start running and listening to some of the stories I'm listening to right now. And telling his own story with an ending like finishing the Boston Marathon. For NPR News, I'm Judith Kogan. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Leila Fadel. Foggy and cloudy today with temperatures in the upper 50s. There's a chance of showers this afternoon and early this evening. Temperatures tonight will be in the low 50s. Right now it's 49 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock and the BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School, proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe.
New emissions rules unveiled by the EPA recently can only be met if automakers are able to sell a lot more electric cars and trucks in the near future. The timeline for this is incredibly fast in an industry as big and as slow as the auto industry. Are consumers ready to buy more EVs? On All Things Considered, from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. I'm senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.